The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to St. Mark. Glory to you, Lord Christ. And Jesus' mother and brethren came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting about him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside, asking for you. And he replied, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking on those who sat about him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God is my brother and my sister and mother. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise you, Lord. can have a seat. Glad there's a lot of children here tonight. I'm going to read uh, a little bit from C.S. Lewis's. Um, got some feedback here. It's a little bit from C.S. Lewis's story called "The Magician's Nephew," and uh, this is from the Chronicles of Narnia. And what you need to know is that there's a boy in the story named Diggory, and Diggory is the magician's nephew. And the magician is his uncle Andrew, but he's sort of a pasty poser of a man. And uh, he has come across some magic that is much, much stronger than he is. And so uh, what this magic does is it can send people into other worlds, not just to transport them into different places in our world, but actually to take them uh, to other worlds. But he's afraid go himself, and so he sends, uh, he sends Diggory and Diggory's friend Polly uh, to be his guinea pigs. Well, Diggory and uh, Polly go into a, an old world with a fading sun, and a turn of events happens where Diggory awakens a very powerful witch, queen, sorceress, and as he's trying to escape uh, by his magic, back into his world, uh, she grabs a hold of him. She is transported with him. And in their uh, events, she, they find themselves in a very dark world. It's completely uh, dark with some other folks. And they hear some singing. And what they hear is Aslan creating the world uh, in which Narnia is. And so what we... Um, what we find is we are in, on, in day two of the existence of Narnia. And because Diggory awakened the witch and has brought her into Aslan's new world, Aslan has sent Diggory, uh, along with Polly and a horse, uh, flying horse named Fledge, uh, to retrieve an apple uh, that will plant a tree uh, that, uh, in Narnia to protect Narnia from the evil witch which has entered uh, his world. What you also need to know is that uh, Diggory, back home in England, uh, Diggory's mother is terminally ill. And that's an important uh, piece of this story. They were about three quarters of the way up the hill and set out at once to climb to the top. All round the very top of the hill ran a high wall of green turf. And inside the wall, trees were growing. 
Their branches hung out over the wall. Their leaves showed not only green, but also blue and silver when the wind stirred them. When the travelers reached the top, they walked nearly all the way around and outside the uh, green wall before they found the gates, high gates of gold, fast shut, facing due east. Up till now, I think Fledge and Polly had had the idea that they would go in with Diggory, but they thought so no longer. You never saw a place which was so obviously private. You could see at a glance that it belonged to someone else. Only a fool would dream of going in, unless he had been sent there on very special business. Diggory himself understood at once that the others would not and could not come in with him. He went forward to the gates alone. And when he had come up close to them, he saw words written on the gold with silver letters, something like this. Come in by the gold gates. Or not at all. Take of my fruit for others or forbear. For those who steal or those who climb my wall shall find their heart's desire and find despair. Take of my fruit for others, said Diggory to himself. Well, that's what I'm going to do. It means I mustn't eat any myself, I suppose. I don't know what all that jaw in the last line is about, come in by the gold gates. Well, who'd want to climb a wall if he could get in by a gate? But how do the gates open? He laid his hand on them, and instantly they swung apart, opening inward, turning on their hinges without the least bit of noise. Now that he could see into the place, it looked more private than ever. He went in very solemnly, looking about him. Everything was very quiet inside. Even the fountain which rose near the middle of the garden made only the faintest sound. The lovely smell was all round him. It was a happy place, but very serious. He knew which was the right tree at once, partly because it stood at the very center, and partly because the great silver apples with which it was loaded shone and cast a light of their own down on the shadowy places where the sunlight did not reach. He walked straight across to it, picked an apple, and put it in the breast pocket of his Norfolk jacket. But he couldn't help looking at it and smelling it before he put it away. It would have been better if he had not. A terrible thirst and hunger came over him and a longing to taste that fruit. He put it hastily into his pocket. But there were plenty of others. Could it be wrong to taste one? After all, he thought, the notice on the gate might not have been exactly an order. It might have been only a piece of advice. And who cares about advice? Or even if it were an order, would he be disobeying by eating an apple? He had already obeyed the part about taking one for others. While he was thinking of all this, he happened to look up through the branches toward the top of the tree. And there on a branch above his head, A wonderful bird was roosting. I say roosting because it seemed almost asleep. Perhaps not quite. The tiniest slit of one eye was open. It was larger than an eagle, its breast saffron, its head crested with scarlet, and its tail purple. It just shows, said Diggory afterward when he was telling the story to others, that you can't be too careful 
in these magical places. You never know what may be watching you. But I think Diggory would not have taken an apple for himself in any case. Things like do not steal were, I think, hammered into boys' heads a good deal harder in those days than they are now. Still, we can never be sure. But Diggory was just turning to go back to the gates when he stopped to have one last look around. He got a terrible shock. He was not alone. There, only a few yards away from him, stood the witch. She was just throwing away the core of an apple which she had eaten. The juice was darker than you would expect. and made a horrid stain around her mouth. Diggory guessed at once that she must have climbed in over the wall. And he began to see that there might be some sense in that last line about getting your heart's desire and getting despair along with it. For the witch looked stronger and prouder than ever, and even in a way triumphant. But her face was deadly white, white as salt. All this flashed through Diggory's mind in a second, and then he took to his heels and ran for the gates as hard as he could pelt, and the witch after him. As soon as he was out, the gates closed behind him of their own accord, he gave, that gave him the lead, but not for long. By the time he had reached the others and was shouting, Get on, quick, Polly, get up, fledge! The witch had climbed the wall or vaulted over it and was close behind him again. Stay where you are, cried Diggory, turning around to face her, or we'll all vanish. Don't come an inch nearer. Foolish boy, said the witch, why do you run from me? I mean you no harm. If you do not stop and listen to me now, you will miss some knowledge that would have made you happy all your life. Well, I don't want to hear it, thanks, said Diggory. But he did. I know what errand you have come on, boy, continued the witch, for it was I who was close behind you in the woods last night and heard all your counsels. You have plucked fruit in the garden yonder. You have it in your pocket now. And you are going to carry it back untasted to the lion for him to eat for him to use you simpleton do you know what that fruit is I will tell you it is the apple of youth the apple of life I know for I have tasted it and I feel already such changes in myself that I know I shall never grow old or die eat it boy eat it and you and I will both live forever and be king and queen of this whole world or of your world if we decide to go back there. No thanks, said Diggory. I don't want, uh, I don't know that I care much about living on and on after everyone I know is dead. I'd rather live an ordinary time and die and go to heaven. But what about this mother of yours whom you pretend to love so? Well, what's she got to do with it, said Diggory? Do you not see, fool, that one bite of that apple would heal her? You have it in your pocket. We are here by ourselves, and the lion is far away. Use your magic. Go back to your own world. A minute later, you can be at your mother's bedside, giving her the fruit. Five minutes later, you will see the color coming back to her face. She will tell you the pain is gone. Soon she will tell you she feels stronger. Then she will fall asleep. Think of that. Hours of sweet, natural sleep without pain, without drugs. Next day, everyone will be saying how wonderfully she has recovered. 
and soon she will be quite well again, and all will be well again. Your home will be happy again, and you will be just like the other boys. Oh, Diggory, Diggory gasped as if he had been hurt and put his hand to his head, for now he knew that the most terrible choice lay before him. What has the lion ever done for you that you should be his slave, said the witch? What can he do to you once you're back in your own world? And what would your mother think if she knew that you could have taken her pain away and given her, given her back her life and saved your father's heart from being broken? And that you wouldn't. That you'd rather run messages for a wild animal in a strange world that is no business of yours. I don't, I don't think he is a wild animal, said Diggory in a dried up sort of voice. He is, I don't know. Well, then he is something worse, said the witch. Look at what he has done to you already. Look how heartless he has made you. That is what he does to everyone who listens to him. Cruel, pitiless boy. You would let your own mother die rather than, oh, shut up, said the miserable Diggory, still in the same voice. Do you think I don't see? But I, I promised. Ah, but you didn't know what you were promising. And no one here can prevent you. Uh, mother herself, said Diggory, getting the words out with difficulty, uh, wouldn't like it. Aw, awfully strict about keeping promises and not stealing and, and that sort of thing. She'd tell me not to do it if she was here. But she need never know, said the witch speaking more sweetly than you would have thought anyone with so fierce a face could speak. You wouldn't tell her how you got the apple. Your father need never know. No one in your world need know anything about this whole story. Now, if you want to find out how it ends, you have to read the book yourself, which we happen to have on sale in our bookstore. <laughs> I love the Chronicles of Narnia, and I love that story because I think Lewis just does such an amazing job of illustrating the terror and the sweetness of temptation. That you shall find your heart's desire and find despair. Think of Eve in the garden talking to the most charming snake she has ever seen. Think of all the good I could do if I just took this apple. See, Diggory was uh, far less tempted uh, to taste the apple than he was to harness its power. The temptation was to take matters into his own hands rather than to trust Aslan, the creator, the lion who cried great, huge tears for Diggory's mother. And so it was with Eve. I, I am convinced that the first sin was not the eating of the apple, but was the turn of her heart down the slippery slope. Do you see the progression? So she saw the fruit as 
good for food. And it was a delight to the eyes. And it was desired to be to make one wise. Her heart was set before she ate the apple. The temptation was to take matters into her own hands rather than to trust God. And so it was with Eve. And so it is with all the sons and daughters of Adam and Eve. You and me. Maybe you just stand here and say, don't do it. So when you're tempted, don't do it. It doesn't work. Because you already have tasted the apple in so many times, and so have I. And even in those times where we didn't, our hearts are set. Where we want to be God in His place. Don't do it. It doesn't work. And God, who is, whose foolishness is far wiser than our wisdom ever will be, knew that. And so we were faced with a problem. We had our heart's deepest desire, which was to be God. And what we found with that was despair. And in our despair, we found ourselves on a chasm. The other side of a chasm, separated from God. But to amend that, to correct that, to rescue us from ourselves, God sent His Son... He sent His Son out of the throne room in all the splendor of heaven into the dust of earth. And He lived the life that we should have lived. And He died the death that we should have died, even death on a cross. The Son of God became a Son of Man so that all the sons and daughters of men might become sons and daughters of God. See, the fall is our reality. It is our condition and ultimately it is our greatest problem. The bent of our hearts as heirs of Adam and Eve is that we want to be God rather than to trust God. And yet, because we could not come up with a solution for our problem on our own, He sent us Christ. Jesus Christ. And what we now have, having been died for and having the hope of resurrection and the full assurance of that which is yet to come, what we have as rescued and redeemed children of God in Christ is far greater than anything that Adam and Eve ever had in the garden before the apple. They were never in Christ. They were never redeemed. Temptation is terrible and it is sweet. But God has sent us a solution in His Son. Thanks be to God. Amen.